Father God, in this beautiful psalm, just reminds us that uh, you are the one in charge of our life, God, and you have good plans, plans to help us and prosper us, to give us a hope and a future. Help us to have open hearts and to have ears that can hear what your spirit is saying to us, to encourage us tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's been called the six most comforting verses in the Bible. And of all the 150 Psalms, I think this one's the most famous, most memorized, and most loved. Uh, This Psalm has put more fears to flight than all of the philosophy in this world. Henry Ward Beecher, a well-known pastor evangelist of uh, the 1800s, had much praise this short little psalm of David. I've got his extended quote here, just some beautiful words for this psalm. It has brought, this psalm has brought courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured consolation into the hearts of the sick, captives in dungeons, widows in their piercing griefs, orphans in their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospital rooms have been illuminated with hope. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains and like Peter's angel led him forth with great joy back to his home again. It has consoled those who mourn the loss of a loved one, not so much that they lost someone dear, but because they were left behind and could not go two beautiful words here so I don't know if you've guessed the identity of the mystery psalm but by now you would know it's Psalm 23 affectionately called the shepherd's psalm so uh, we are going to recite it together shall we starting at verse 1 as it appears on the screen let's read the Lord is my shepherd I shall lack nothing He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely we all know it by heart. (laughs) We didn't need the slide. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Well, God likes to take illustrations from everyday life and use them as metaphors and analogies to teach spiritual truths. That's exactly what a parable is and why Jesus loved them so much. And the world of shepherding is really rich with insights. And no one would know that better than David, who grew up as a shepherd, shepherding uh, his father's flocks there. And so 
This idea that God is similar in some ways to a shepherd is from cover to cover uh, in our Bible. In uh, Genesis 48, Jacob is on his deathbed and uh, he, he says out loud to everybody in his testimony, God has been my good shepherd all the days of my life. And, and it begins even earlier in Genesis, uh, ascribing characteristics of a loving, caring uh, shepherd to God our Father. And uh, all through the Bible, and then even closing up in Revelation, uh, worship before the throne, praising God for being our good shepherd who guides us to the springs of living waters. And um, and then goes on to say that he wipes uh, every tear from our eyes, our good uh, shepherd. So tonight we imagine ourselves in uh, the lush pastures of the promised land as Israel's sweet psalmist, as he's called in the Bible, King David, uh, sings us a song that God gave to him. After all, it is God's word. And the Holy Spirit will remind us once again who God is and who we are and what it means to belong to him. So let's dive in. Here are the verses uh, uh, one through three. The Lord is my shepherd. You know, he could have said the Lord is the shepherd of all of us, you know, but it's so much more powerful when we understand he's not just some God out there who made heaven and earth, but he's my God. As Paul the Apostle would call the gospel, my gospel. That's just the way it is. It's uh, Christianity isn't just some religion of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. It's about a person. It's about a love. It's about a God. <laughs> who would lay down his life for us so that we could be reconciled to him. Well, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. So roles have been reversed, interestingly. Uh, David, once in the role of a shepherd himself, now sees himself as a sheep and the Lord as his shepherd responsible for David's care. So David is no longer a shepherd boy when he writes this uh, psalm. Uh, we are first introduced to David as a shepherd. First uh, Samuel 16, uh, we first see David coming into the house uh, from the sheepfold, you know, and he's described, quote, as a ruddy. A ruddy means a healthy glow. And uh, bright eyes, handsome features, uh, this shepherd boy. And uh, but he's got youthfulness, and so no doubt he's not free from the normal insecurities. But as he writes this, he's an older, fully grown man. He's an accomplished, uh, courageous warrior. He's a well-known king. Uh, David himself is amazed at how far he's come from his early shepherd days. Uh, Psalm 18, he says, God, with your help, I've trampled my enemies under my feet. You've made me head of nations. People I don't know bow in reverence to me. Foreigners cower before me. That's Psalm 18. 
So interestingly, isn't it that a, that a man of his uh, celebrated accomplishments as a warrior and as a king over nations, not only Israel, but Ammon and uh, Moab and Edom, uh, yeah, he, this man humbles himself and considers himself as helpless, foolish, and dumb as a sheep that he's incapable of caring for himself and he needs someone to take care of him. So our first little thing to note of interest is that there are some preliminaries before one can uh, enjoy safe pastures of the Lord and uh, the wonderful perks of belonging to him. You need to have the nature of a sheep to know the Lord is your shepherd because not everybody in the world belongs to the Lord. Uh, yeah, you can't have the nature of a predatory wolf or the nature of a shrewd serpent or an aggressive, strong-willed goat. Uh, no one can say the Lord is my shepherd until they've given up every futile notion that they can manage their own lives and they've got their act together because you don't need a shepherd if you got everything going on <laughs> perfectly. And so no wonder Proverbs is all about the benefits of humility and uh, the benefits of humility are wealth, honor, and life. And David humbled himself. And uh, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So David is not afraid to identify with a sheep and say that apart from the Lord's intervention in my life, I just can't make it. This is a very uh, humbling place to be. But didn't Jesus say, blessed are the meek? For they are the ones at the end of the world that overcome the world and inherit eternal life. The meek. Not those who are strong in themselves and are self-sufficient. So, uh, so yeah, uh, he's humbled. I mean, he's going to say, yeah, I'm I'm." Just as dumb as a sheep. You know, sheep are not known, uh, as most of you know, for their brain power. Uh, they, are, they don't have keen intellects, sheep. They're, they're, they're just dumb. All right? So sheep, sheep <laughs> yeah, and sorry to say that the Lord calls us his sheep. Uh, but sheep, I'm told, will go anywhere except in the right direction. Uh, they'll wander away from the fields of clover into barren wastelands uh, where there's a lot of dirt and dry brush. Uh, they have zero in, uh, instinct for danger. Uh, they look up, they see the wolf coming, uh, and they put their head down and continue to eat. They just keep eating. Uh, and they're defenseless. What are they going to do if the wolf comes? You know, th their teeth, they're flat. They're low for grass, you know. They're just, have you ever seen, I, I don't know, I look at those fields and the sheep just staring in, <laughs> into oblivion and uh, don't look very scary to me. Uh, yeah, so storms blow in and winds pick up and the temperatures drop and most animals by instinct will run for cover. They'll take cover, but sheep just stand there. They just stand there and get rained on. Uh, they don't really seem to mind uh, because they're dumb. Um, so it, it's, <laughs> it's also true 
that they can be mindless followers and, and follow each other off the proverbial cliff. Uh, I don't know if you remember seeing in the news years ago a whole pile of wool at the bottom of a cliff uh, because they just kept following the leaders and follow me guys and off the cliff they went and just piled up at the bottom you see nobody stopped to think hey this looks like a bad idea you know but they didn't and so yeah so David is humbling himself and saying I'm like that and nobody's going to be in heaven unless they have that same attitude not one person will be in heaven who says <laughs> you know my life, I had it together, and I'm here because of my skill set. Nope. David is willing to humble himself and say, the Lord is the reason. The Lord is my shepherd. I can't do anything. The reason I have anything at all, it comes from him. He's not um, all about his skill and self-sufficiency, uh, but he's about his helplessness. That's why Paul the Apostle, the New Testament counterpart kind of idea here, is that is why for Christ's sake I delight in my weaknesses and my hardships. So even in the New Testament, the idea isn't about the strength of man. It's not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Paul says, when I'm weak, that's when I'm really strong. So. Yeah, so David had his fair share of life experiences that helped uh, keep him humble. He, he understood life is, his life is vulnerable, uh, fragile life, and all the crazy twists and turns uh, that, that showed him his need of God's intervention to have a shepherd, to have God as somebody who had to care for him and take care of him. There was uh, nothing uh, too humble in that. And so uh, I have written down here, who's in charge of your life? You or the shepherd, you see, it's okay to be weak. It's okay not to have everything together. It's okay because the responsibility to take care of you is his. I think I sent Psalm 100 a couple verses from there over. Uh, Worship the Lord, another one of David's uh, psalms. Uh, Come before the Lord with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us. We are his. We are his people. We're not our own. We didn't get here by ourselves. None of us decided, you know, to to become a human being. This was somebody else's idea, and it's on the somebody else who created us to take care of us because we are not our own. First Corinthians chapter six says the same thing. And so notice the sweet assurance as we continue on this holy confidence. Because the Lord's in charge of me, I will lack nothing. So uh, no better reason for confidence, my friends, than it's sort of like if God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, since the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is the one responsible for my care, I have to have everything I need. Of course. You know, when it was David's job to take care of those sheep, as their shepherd, he, <clears throat> he, he knew what his job description was. He always guided them to the best fields uh, for nourishment, always protected them from predators. Uh, when the mountain lion came, he, he killed the mountain lion with his bare hands. That's his testimony. 
Uh, he knew his job was to protect the sheep. Storms rolled in. He knew the strong rock shelters and thick groves uh, to shelter them in, to lead them there. When any of them became sick or injured, he knew exactly what to do to give them the necessary aid uh, to bring healing and wholeness to them. So David's thinking, now wait a second. If that was my job and I was limited and though I have a fallen nature, uh, I did my best to care in every way for all of their needs. But God, if God is my shepherd, uh, he's got unlimited resources. He, he knows everything. He's ever present. He's all powerful. And with the added bonus that the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness toward me, so he's thinking, well, if God is my shepherd, then I got it made in the shade, and all my needs are his concerns. So uh, something that we forget because our faith is so fickle, that Jesus, God's son, who comes from the Father, came down from heaven, is happy to remind us fearful creatures of God's faithfulness. So I'm going to read a verse and then you guys are going to repeat with me verse 1, and you'll say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. Okay, so here's the verse, and then I want you to repeat verse 1, okay? The verse is Jesus saying, if you human beings know how to take good care of your children, and you have a sinful nature, how much better does God know how to provide for your needs? Then we read together, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. All right, let's try this again two more times. Jesus says, please stop worrying about all of your daily necessities. Why are you so anxious? Take a look around you. If God cares for the birds, he feeds the ravens, and he clothes the grass of the field, the lilies of the field, how much more so his children he purchased with his own blood. Reading, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. One more time. All right. Paul will say, since God didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't it make sense that he'll also give us everything else we need? Reading, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. Amen. It's good. It's good in church. I mean, we'll feel it in church. It, this feeling of, wow, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing, uh, it'll last a good 45 minutes, you know, to, and sometimes a little bit longer. But <laughs> as long as you're holding on to the scriptures and trusting in the Lord, you know what I'm saying. So verse 2, uh, as you see, and 3, reveals what God sees our greatest needs uh, and it's not money and job and stuff and a car. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet water. So the first thing God is concerned about doing in David's life and the first longing in David's heart, they come together here in this beautiful picture and this beautiful spiritual application of peace of heart, a mind at rest, a clean conscience, absence of fear and a deep and profound sense of the soul's well-being and notice 
it says, he makes me lie down. Because we don't come by uh, the soul rest very easily or readily. We're always striving. We're always go, go, go. Produce, produce, produce. Work, work, work. Got to be busy. Got to be doing. Always striving. Making a living. Doing our jobs. Keeping everybody happy. Dealing with difficult people. Embroiled in drama of all kinds. Um, the effort to live out the Christian life. All of it, you know. Most of us live a whirlwind, quiet lives of desperation. But God has another vision for our lives. It's this one, quiet lives of rest for our souls. Like Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, everyone, anyone who's weary, heavy burden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am humble and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. I call this verse the golden arrow because as you, some of you know or remember, um, before I became a Christian and I was 19 working in the financial district uh, in San Francisco in a bank, uh, the, on the way to work every day I had to go by a church, a Baptist church that had that uh, the beginnings of that verse on the marquee. And I call it the golden arrow because I was just minding my own business as a 19-year-old sinner. And I, I look out and I see that and it just, it just touched my heart. And I always wondered every time I passed it, why is that so inviting? It's because it's how God created us to live. The Psalm 23 this is just if you took an MRI of the Lord's heart, you, you would see, spiritually speaking, you would see what he wants for us is his peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace, the peace of God I give to you. You won't find it in the world. The world can't give it to you. But I give you my peace. John 14, verse 28 there, that's his heart, that we don't run around in fear and what if and all tangled up in the cares of this life as if we don't have a God in heaven, a father above who's watching over us in love and promises to take care of us, to give us peace. But as Augustine said, and it's very famous, he said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. Green pastures here uh, really represent us being rested and nourished in the living word, feeding upon his word. For Jesus said, you know, man cannot live on food alone, but listen, from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's where your true life comes from. And I think these sheep that are resting and 
uh, grazing in these green pastures. The thick green grass there really represents the uh, well-nourished Christian on the word of God. And as we stay nourished, our hearts are set free. His perfect love casts out our fears. Uh, His word uh, cleanses our hearts and renews our minds and heals our wounds, provides wisdom, strengthening the inner man, comforting, guiding us, renewing our hope. And so we see then God's people rested safe in these green pastures, always fresh, always rich, never exhausted. And so by staying nourished in his word, it has a couple benefits highlighted here in verse 3. Uh, he restores, I like to say he restores my sanity because he does. He restores my soul, but there is kind of a sense that he restores our sanity in a world that's gone crazy. Christians who live in this fallen world uh, often need to be restored in their souls because this place is so upsetting and we have a sin nature that can defile us so quickly and others around us, you see. And so, yeah, we are like Lot, who the New Testament describes as that righteous man who lived in Sodom. His soul was vexed. It means to be upset or to be torn up. Uh, His soul was torn up day and night by the evil, godless things he saw and heard. That's 2 Peter 2 and verse 8. He restores my soul. So when your soul is sorrowful, he revives it. When your soul is depressed, he encourages it. When your soul has been wounded and you've been betrayed, and you're confused, and you're hurting, and you're reeling in pain. You go to the God who created all things and loves you, and he heals you and revitalizes you. And when your own sin has defiled you, you see, He'll cleanse you and restore you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, The soul can grow foul and black with sin, but what good are green pastures with a dirty soul, you see? So, yeah, he restores my soul. And doesn't just comfort and restore us, he leads and guides me, uh, verse 3b. He guides and leads me in right paths for his name's sake. So... Hearing the shepherd's voice and following him is a solid sign of genuine salvation. It's how we know who's who. Uh, Those who are led, Romans chapter 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You see, uh, the shepherd leads and we must follow. And by following, we show that we belong to him. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus said to his enemies, the religious leaders, I told you, On the Messiah, he said, John chapter uh, 10. Uh, Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. But you haven't believed in me because you're not my sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me, and they will follow me. John chapter 10. You see, so he says that we are always led in right paths. So that includes the 
the uh, terrible anxiety we all have that we're going to miss the path some way or we're going to not find the person God has for us or, or we're going to take the wrong job or we're going to make a decision that's not in God's will. But he says, you know what, if you stay close to the shepherd and you're in those fields resting in his presence and in his love and being nourished by his word, uh, his spirit is going to lead you in the right way. And that would include for, include for sure um, physically, you know, as I'm saying, your life. You know, should I move forward? Should I decline? Do I, do I do something here? Do I keep quiet? Do I turn left or right? I don't know how many times in a day I can think some of these things. And, I, and it's so helpful to just pray. Go ahead and pray. You don't have to have a prayer meeting. But go ahead and just throw it up there. God, which psalm do you want me to do this week? So I did that. And he said, Psalm 23. And I'm like, I already told him 110. And it's like, oh, no, then why don't you ask me? (laughs) (laughs) He leads us. And it was so funny how he made so clear to me. Psalm 23, Psalm 23. I kept going to 110, going to 110, and he kept pulling me to Psalm 23, but in such obvious ways. I couldn't deny it. So I'm like, that's where I'm going, you see? But he does that. Yeah, I told you how we started the church. I I went and gathered all my courage up, and I went before the senior pastor of uh, where we were serving in Petaluma, and I'm waiting in line to drop the bomb. I want to start a church in Sebastopol. And God had given us so many signs and all of that. And I'm waiting in line. You've heard the story. I'm waiting in line to talk to him after a Sunday message. And this guy starts talking to me. And, and I'm trying to pay attention to when, when I can get up and talk to the pastor and formulate my thoughts. And he keeps interrupting me. And he's saying, hey, Ross, what's up? Yeah, what's up? Yeah, hi. Bye. <laughs> and he says to me, hey, I've got a question. How would you know if God's calling you to plant a church? And I'm like, me? How would I know? No, how would I know? How would you know? How would anybody know? And I'm like, why are you asking me that now? You know? And he goes, well, I was driving through Sebastopol. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what's in my head. I was driving through Sebastopol, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a Calvary Chapel in Sebastopol? I was like, did Barb talk to you? <laughs> no, I didn't even say that because Barb didn't say a word to anybody. But God was saying, let me lead you and guide you in the right path. You and so many other things. And you know, you guys could all stand up here and give testimonies about the wonderful way God leads us down the right path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Come on. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what will he do? He'll direct your paths or make them straight. But he will lead you in right paths. I think more importantly, the meaning of this verse is morally. He leads you in paths of righteousness, meaning, you know, the, giving us the wisdom and desire to choose the correct thing. To, for example, to choose right friends. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
how to respond godly when you're mistreated. He leads you in the path of righteousness, how to deal with difficult people, how to love the unlovely, how to go the extra mile, how to turn the other cheek. He leads you in that way. We don't know how to do that, but he will lead us in paths of moral righteousness, the strength to abstain from sin and to to do his will to grow closer uh, to him. And so... Now for a bit of a turn in David's thinking, here comes trouble, verses 4 and 5. So, you know, the Bible is um, filled with realism. It's not like God's people live in some kind of uh, Pollyanna, uh, kind of an unreality, like an unrealistic optimism in life. It's not like we are all like think this is a Christian Disneyland, you know, that everything's, you know, green pastures and quiet waters. And David's like, he's well acquainted with troubles, perhaps betrayals and threats. And so what is life like with this shepherd in the midst of the valleys? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Up until then, it's been third person. He restores. He leads. But now with evil breathing down his neck, it's like, you, you were there. That's why. I don't have some religion or some philosophy. I've got a presence. I'm not even clinging to a promise. That's not why I don't have any fear. I don't have any fear because you, you, the earth maker, You're with me and for me. So what do I have to fear? Let's talk about this. You know, Valley of the Shadow, I I noted happily that this is not his dwelling place. He's passing through. You lead me, we're walking through it. Even though I walk through the valley, that means there's a beginning, middle, and end, thank God, you see. And uh, I I like that. And even with our shepherds, uh, with our shepherd by our side, we have valleys. And uh, because we live in a fallen world, we got to encounter dark, scary places. Before Genesis 3, there were no valleys, no scary shadows, just bright noonday sun, a beautiful garden of paradise, a husband and a wife walking together with no problems, total understanding of one another and love for one another and uh, in harmony walking with God. And then, uh, yes, but when Eve sinned and Adam sinned together, they brought death and the valley of the shadow uh, to a neighborhood near you and me. And uh, just uh, valleys appeared everywhere with every imaginable kind of shadow you can think of. It's worth noting, though, also, that for God's people alone, these kinds of deadly threats are called a shadow. No substance in a shadow. Listen to what uh, Charles Spurgeon, my go-to guy, uh, had to say about this. I got a quote. Death in its substance has been removed and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody's afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You see, death has been swallowed up 
in victory through Christ's death on our behalf. And so, yeah, not all mountaintop experiences where we're on the mountaintop and smelling the wonderful mountain air and taking in the magnificent views and not all level playing fields where serene meadows and seasons of ease. A valley really suggests being hedged in and surrounded and David's talking about uh, feeling uh, evil near him. Maybe some the bad guys have gotten the upper hand or so it seems and some kind of threat uh, to his happiness or well-being or his life or his health. Uh, opposition and an attack. So notice what gives him comfort, as I've been saying, that God himself is with him. Now, uh, that's the thing about God. It's one of his names, Emmanuel. You know, as uh, it says of, it, it, at Christmas time, the birth announcement, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All the way uh, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 700 years earlier to say this is the thing that is going to be kind of characterize the Messiah, that he's actually God in human form who's made his dwelling among us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. God who was the word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. Hence he is called God with us, you see. Sometimes I hear him saying, do you believe me or not? Am I here with you or not? And you might be in a trial and you should ask yourself, am I a believer or not? Is the promise that he is with me true or not? And if it's true, then you have to align your behavior and your thoughts and your feelings with the truth. We don't let our feelings lead the way, but the fact of God's word. Because he's with me, I will fear no evil. I have written down here a sixth grade uh, memory. <clears throat> we were in a schoolyard, and the schoolyard was just uh, right across the street practically from our house. And uh, some bullies were chasing us and pelting us with rocks, and uh, me and my brothers and... Uh, some others, we, we, we ran to my house and they were chasing us and they were mean and angry. And uh, so my dad, we got into the driveway and they kind of slowed down and my dad heard the ruckus and my dad came out from nowhere. <laughs> I didn't even know uh, what's my dad doing there. But my dad, six foot tall, and I didn't always look happy. <laughs> and he, he appeared, and he definitely wasn't happy with those kids. And it was like watching a cartoon. Uh, suddenly, they're all running, and suddenly, in slow motion, they're like, <laughs> stopping. You know, they see my dad, and they drop their rocks, and they turn, and they run. And to this day, I have this picture in my head that brings me such joy, <laughs> such joy, and I remember the feeling, my dad's here, nothing to fear from them, you see, and that's really what's going on here, just a, a beautiful realization that the Lord is with him, and that makes all the difference, and so, 
Yeah, uh, you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My head is anointed with oil. By the way, the anointing of the oil, you see back in ancient times, uh, out under the hot uh, Mediterranean sun, traveling around, dust in the air, uh, people would go to somebody's house, and uh, if it was a, a special occasion or something, they would take kind of a fragrant lotion and anoint them on their head and they would just freshen up and, and put that through their hair and just feel maybe like almost like aftershave or kind of thing like that. And so it sounds strange to us, but there uh, uh, was something just really beautiful and it smelled beautiful and it oh, was refreshing. And so here's, he got a picture. Here's a striking paradox. Uh, the, the house is surrounded by horrible hateful people intent on doing him harm, chanting, lurking, hiding, threatening, setting ambushes, screaming, yelling. And the Lord is the host who wants to have a party inside. He wants to set a banquet. He wants it to be Thanksgiving. He, He wants the fun oldies music to be on inside get out the special dinnerware, and he plans like a little Thanksgiving feast. He's going to make a toast. He wants everybody to relax. And you can hear it through the walls almost, right? So, you know, another writer said, the bad guys are at the door, but there's no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is right a stone's throw away, and yet God prepares a table and the Christian sits down down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. Because why? Because everything is in perfect peace if you have the peace of Christ. He says the peace of Christ will guard your heart. Well, Well, what kind of threat or worries or concern does Christ have? None. So the, the, the peace that God has that perfect peace is in your heart, guarding your heart, then you're able to, in the midst of threats, to still have some semblance of joy and relationship with God and enjoy his blessings. I had a good quote here. The host's care and concern doesn't eliminate the presence of my enemies, but enables the experience of God's goodness and bounty to be fully enjoyed even in their midst. I like that. So uh, I also like this quote by McLaren, another 1800s guy, uh, good preacher. He said, this is the condition of God's servant in the world. We're always going to have conflict before us, and we always will have the spread table before us as well. And so um, one of these other guys said, Beloved, I will ask you now a question. How would it be with you if God had filled your cup in proportion to your faith that evening? How much would you have had in your cup? Would it be overflowing? So for me, the older I get, um, the less I panic, 100%. Well, I'm pretty much done with panicking, although I don't know. I see my wife out there, and so I have to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I'm pretty much over panicking. 
Because why? Because after a while, it always works out. It always works out. And then afterwards, you look back and go, oh, oh my goodness, I have no idea how you could use that for good. You see? And uh, so, so when, when the road takes a twist and the enemies are out there doing the thing or whatever, I just skip the whole panic part. You know, I've been on my deathbed twice already. You, you see? And here I still am yakking away <laughs> into the evening hours, you know? And uh, so I just skip the panic part. And Jesus says that. Well, just skip the panic part. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two thoughts that bring the psalm to a close. God's goodness and mercy in life and the life to come, eternal life, dwelling with the Lord, which, which is how the psalm is headed. One day I'm going to be in heaven, I'm going to be complete, I'm going to wake up in your likeness and we are going to be together forever. That's his thought. But he also starts with the goodness and the mercy in life. Uh, but it's a little strange. And uh, it's awkwardly placed. Because usually mercy and goodness would lead you. They would be up front. Or I'm thankful for goodness and mercy that I have right now. And you're leading me in good and merciful ways. What in the world is goodness and mercy doing behind him in the rearview mirror. He says, I'm looking at my life. He's old now. And he's looking back and he's in the looking in the rearview mirror. And what? Well, for one thing, he sees some skeletons, doesn't he? He sees shameful things. He sees so much sin. He said about his own sin. Psalm 40, I might have it for you. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me because of my sins. Oh, be pleased to save me from my sins and my evil and my guilt. Lord, help me. So the thing that, as he thinks about dwelling with the, in the house of the Lord forever, the thing that robs him, of peace is the regret about how he's lived his life and the missteps that are in the rearview mirror. But that's not all he sees in the rearview mirror because as he's probably having, he's upset and, and he feels guilty and, and he fears some, he has some fear about it because he's going to see God and he's accountable. And he's looking in the back and he says, what about that whole Bathsheba thing? I'll try to cover it up. I should never have done that. The wife of somebody who was fighting on the field where I should have been. Try to cover it up. The husband ends up dead. I see that in the rearview mirror. Now I'm thinking about surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, I got to see him. But that's not all he sees in the rearview mirror. He doesn't just see that terrible sin back there. He sees goodness and mercy following behind all of his sin and all of his shenanigans and all of his missteps. There it is, like a street sweeper 
that's just coming behind them all the time. What? Romans 8, 28. Working all things, even your sin, together for some kind of good. And you're saying, well, what kind of good? Oh, surely a lot of bad came from that sin. A lot of people were hurt. Families were destroyed. All kinds of things, right? But how did God use that? Well, he married Bathsheba. And after that first baby died, they had another baby. And they named him the Lord's Peace, Solomon. And if you check out Jesus' genealogy, he descends through Solomon. So the most terrible, horrible thing that David ever did in the rearview mirror, he sees, how does God do this goodness and mercy? It never will justify sinning. And anybody who sins in a presumptuous way like that, thinking, well, God's just going to make it work out okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is really asking for trouble. Uh, but the Lord is good, and he is faithful, and David can die in peace and say, surely goodness and mercy is behind me, uh, taking care of me, behind me and before me, and I have nothing but a bright future dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Psalm 23. Thank you for directing me and redirecting me, God, because I'm sure that not only I needed to hear this again, but so many others. Apply your word to our hearts, God. We're just such fickle people. We're hot and cold and cold and hot and up and down and down and up. And we just pray, Lord, that you would stabilize us as we meditate on your word and as you make us to lie down in green meadows, Lord. Restore our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.